Yes, I'm ready to launch. I'm ready to launch. Failure to launch was the Matthew McConaughey film, wasn't it, with Sarah yes, Jessica yes. Parker? Yeah, that was what that, I had in mind actually when I was saying that's, that. That's that's one of the first films I saw with him in. Actually, it made me fall in love with him. I'm gonna guess that was 2005. It sounds like the period. Yeah, in which he would be the poster would have him like leaning against his love interest, and maybe he'd have a tie over his. She'd be like pulling his tie over his shoulder or something kooky like that. Yeah, and he'd be like, like smiling, possibly shrugging, uh, but she would be rolling her eyes, wouldn't she? Yeah. So it'd yeah. be like, oh, silly. But I still love him because he's hot. Yeah, I still love him because he's hot, and I'll put up with anything else. And then the film would be, they start off, it shows them separately, and then they they meet awkwardly, and there's like have a sort of cumbersome awkward meeting. Then they go away, and they kind of like try to pretend it didn't happen, but then they're forced together by circumstance and then they 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 sort of start liking each other but then something bad happens and they separate again but then they're friends who are kooky and funny throughout so you know come on and probably gay as well yeah yeah and then they get together and he literally gets drunk and beats the shit out of it with a hammer (laughs) (laughs) and that's pretty much all really took a turn didn't it (laughs) the final act yeah i wonder why it was 18 uh, really gentle PG until the other one he loses his mind, turns into a werewolf and just like tears it to shreds with his bare paws. I have had this. I think th- that was. I think that was the film waiting to turn. Yeah, that amazing. That amazing idea that I'd still like to see of a really sort of like um, British, like like sort of knockabout silly screwball comedy with like sort of that mm-hmm. when everyone says a joke, but then halfway through the father goes, oh, get away. And it suddenly turns into a really visceral 80s horror where he tears his family to shreds. Same plot every episode for like, <laughs> for like four seasons of six episodes. Like it's it's like, oh, the, the Turners go to the seaside and it's like 15 minutes of like silly him, like peeping down a woman's bra. And the mother saying, stop looking, George. And then halfway through, oh, <laughs> <laughs> suddenly it's a moon and he turns into a whale and murders his family in cold blood. <laughs> Waiting to uh, turn. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, th- there's something that's been kicking around on my... I've got, like, a lot of notes on my phone. I'm also going to say a big hello to all the new listeners that have um, that are tuned in. Um, it, yeah, I, I've... So this, I had on my phone this title of this film written down, and I didn't even know it was a title of a movie. Uh, and I, right. for like two or three episodes, I thought, why have I got that on my phone? What does it mean? And I, and I, and I looked at it on Wikipedia. I'm looking at it now, and it, I'm going to ask you a question in a minute. But I think there was a lot of reasons I had this on my phone. I think there's like a lot, a lot to take in. It's a film on which, from 2000, it's an independent action film on which Brian Trenchard Smith is a creative consultant and it stars wolf larson who i mean i don't know if anyone i didn't even remember this and i talked about the film was Mm. the the main antagonist in the billy blanks film i talked about and last episode called expect no mercy where he tries to evade them by running down a corridor and hiding in plain view in front of them oh yeah yeah and um yeah so this film right i think it was the brian trenchard smith thing the wolf larson thing the billy blanks link also The plot is the most generic. It's the most like functional plot I've ever read. Plot description I've ever read on Wikipedia. And also, it's just the title of the film. And I'm going to make you guess the title of the film. And I'm going to give you two pieces of information. And you have to guess the title of this film, right? Right. 
So this is a 2000 action film, and the plot... I'll take the names out, because they're the two bits of information I'm going to give you for you to guess the the title. And feel free to play along at home. Um, So it says, a drug enforcement agent is forced to team up with a CIA agent. Although their personalities and working styles of the two agents are drastically different, they become good friends whilst on the trail of a notorious terrorist. Right, so it's the most. That's the most like functional plotline, isn't it? Right. Now you have to guess the title of this film, mm. and, and all I'm going to say is the two names of the detectives. Right. Right. Crash Riley and Roman Burns. Oh my goodness, dude! Oh my goodness. So, what would you think the title of that film would be? Well, Riley and Roman, clearly. <laughs> They do look like, what else could it be? <laughs> I think you find it, but it's actually Crash and Burns. Um, Come on. Just, no, that is, it wouldn't be that obvious, obvious would it? It wouldn't have thought, made up the name specifically for that pun, surely. Yeah, well, yeah you imagine the, the the parents like sort of coo- cooing the child near the font in the church, and the, the, the vicar comes over and says, Oh, so when, before the baptism, just so I know, you know, what are you going to call him, Mr. Riley? And, well, we're thinking about Crash, actually. And then the, the vicar would say, Well, that's a shit name, isn't it? Remember? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's yeah. like yeah. Whether it, whether a verb or a noun, that is just never a good word. <laughs> yeah, it, like ravine. Yeah, <laughs> it's never like oh, what a gorgeous ravine. It's oh, where's your yeah. son? Oh, he's dead. He fell down a ravine. It's never a nice. <laughs> it's never used in a nice context. A pleasurable. Yeah, context. yeah and crash is like it's never a good crash. It's like oh, I just had a quick crash on the motorway. It was fine. <laughs> yeah. No. And you know, if he got a job in IT, he would spend a lot of his time rubbing his temples as his <laughs> colleagues made really low, low budget jokes. <laughs> yeah, cra- Crash and Burns, um, Brian, not even directed by Brian Trenchard Smith. He was a creative consultant. I want to watch it now. Um, it's a it's a TV movie for Canadian TV, so the Savalas. <sighs> but a movie's on the Savalas. I mean, if they're made specially for it, then I cope with oh, that. There's no, but, yeah, no problem with TV movie. I mean, most movies are tv movies nowadays aren't they really technically this, this is very true actually yeah um so yeah and, and the other thing what well, there's a couple of things i want to talk about before we go into the arkenstar um uh, th- there was something that happened for the first time to me this 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 week and it really pissed me off more than it should have um i was out charity shop hunting for movies preferably ones where there's more than one movie on a dvd because they're the real they're the real keepers and I, was in a charity, I was in a charity shop in cardiff and i found a movie called the ultimate weapon starring terry belaya some listeners may know him as hulk hogan and i thought wow i know he did obviously like suburban commando mr nanny and um no holds barred but i'd never heard of the ultimate weapon and it looked like a proper straight to dvd movie from the late eight, from the late 90s and on the cover the ultimate if you can weapon see it, just sounds like a wrestler to be honest well the ultimate warrior was a yeah, yeah. so it's just maybe that's what they're going for me oh, well we'll get ultimate in there yeah. um on the cover of the dvd by the way if, if anyone can see this um it looks like hulk hogan is just lifting out the center part of his gun it's really bizarre it's it's almost like it's like he's holding the magazine for the weapon in his hand but the way it's the picture's taken it looks like he's just removed the centerpiece of his rifle, but it's still staying in shape. It's it's a really odd image. He is wearing a syrup of figs as well. He's got this like blonde crew cut. So anyway, 
I picked this up for 49p in a charity shop and I came home, put it in. And out of curiosity, I went on Amazon Prime and put in Hulk Hogan. And what do you think is the only fucking Hulk Hogan film on Amazon Prime at the moment? It's the ultimate weapon, isn't it? (laughs) I thought, what are the chances of this film I've never heard being the only... So I just wasted... I just threw away 49 pence into a river. Um, So I'll talk about that. And the other thing is... um, we. I'm just sorry. I'm just looking at the poster now. Goodness. Oh me. yeah, nice. Goodness <laughs> me. There's a couple of so, variations of it actually, and one of them, I venture, the photograph of the body, the photograph of the head, <laughs> are not from the same source. Never the two should have met. <laughs> Never the twain shall meet. He, um, is it? Can you see what I mean? Is there one about where he's like removing part of his gun? Well, it looks like I don't know. It's like he's almost like uh, he seems like he's tweaking something on top of his gun. But it's like it's got some sort of scope on it. But if you look at the gun, that is not a gun which should benefit from a scope. Put it that way. Yeah, it looks like some not, automatic shotgun or something. He's not tweaking his CV. I'll tell you that. Yeah. He's about to play uh, Sniper Elite Five, where you don't do any sniping. <laughs> All right. Oh come on, we can't, we can't, we can't delve into into state of play territory. I know. <laughs> Cross pollination. We've had an email, Rupert. Um, this is an email that got oh, yes. stuck. I got stuck in the. It's if you do want to email us, by the way, it's the men who talk at outlook.com. And this got stuck in our junk folder, so I do apologise. <coughs> um, to the sender. Um, this was actually sent after you did your Jaws episode, where you went through all the Jaws films. <laughs> And I don't know if you remember, we asked a question on that uh, on that episode. We we sort of just threw it out there, and someone has actually responded to it. And um, this is the part where, if this was, if we had a production team behind us, I would say, "Oh, we asked a question," and I'd cut back to that segment of the episode where we actually said the words, you know, and put the question forwards. Oh, yeah. But we haven't got a production team, and I'm extremely no. lazy. And those things work together to just make me say that you mentioned. I think it was in Jaws three that mm. a shark a shark sort of follows an aeroplane across the ocean i think it's jaws for jaws of revenge jaws, it, jaws it revenge. follows them like three thousand miles down the coast to the is it the bahamas yeah something like that yeah and then it like hunts the person down so yeah. we said if a marine biologist out there is listening and they have the answers for us by all means get in touch and one did oh my <clears> goodness so this is dear britain rupert I've been following Kino Kingdom for a while now from my boat in the South Pacific. I enjoy the podcast, although not being a film buff, I must say that the Arkansas is a shit game for kids. I heard in the last episode that you were looking for a marine biologist with knowledge of sharks to answer whether it was realistic for a great white to stalk a person from an island off the coast of the eastern United States to the Bahamas. Luckily, I am well respected in the field, so I'm ideally placed to answer your question. I'm afraid I'm afraid that whoever made the film, I forget who it was, but we all know that Spielberg wouldn't have been within 50 miles of the room where this shash was even pitched, failed to do even the most basic research. <clears throat> it's about 1,200 miles between the two points, taking Martha's Vineyard as the start. And although sharks do migrate, they are famous for not being able to travel at hundreds of miles an hour to follow a bloody <laughs> plane, nor to sniff out a specific person among the population of the Bahamas. I'm all for suspension of disbelief, but Christ, and don't even get me started on the sharks passing a grudge down through generations either. Anyway, love the podcast. Keep up the good work. 
your friend, Dr. Heng S. Go, not that one, marine biologist. Excellent. So thank well, you, Mr. Go. There it Goh. is. Yeah. yeah. It, our suspicions are confirmed then. That really couldn't <laughs> yeah. have happened. Didn't mention whether it was realistic or not for the great white shark to actually roar like a lion. Didn't mention Underwater? Or... I can't remember whether it's specifically underwater or just when it jumps out of the water, you know, to make it more realistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. yeah. the other thing is, it, it could be realistic because if you think about it, whales go, ah. It's true. Ah, don't they? And it picks it up on radar, sonar, sorry. They do. They yeah. do. They they got a beautiful haunting song under the water. As soon as they get out of the water, it just sounds like it just sounds like, huh, huh. <laughs> yeah, as if they're too thick to understand anything. If you, if you see a, like a, a whale coming from the sort of ocean floor swimming upwards, it would be. And then as it broke the waves, it would go. <laughs> Suddenly, they're from Twitter. We Vail. discover that whale song is just really thick <laughs> underwater <laughs> mammals. Really thick South Wailing accents from up near Cliddach. Um, yeah, and, and so yeah, I, I do apologize. There's a lot of a preamble here. There's because just because we've had so much contact from our listeners, which is always glorious. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, and also a correction from our regular Utah Smith who said that it, uh, previously <clears throat> I, uh, you were talking about an, um, an actor that was in Con Air, and I said he played the character Pinball, and Utah Smith corrected me and said Dave Chappelle actually plays Pinball, so I got the characters mixed up. And speaking of Utah Smith, before we go into the... Uh, actually, this leads us nicely into the Arkansas, which I understand you were too lazy to do. Was well, that... I believe the rule is that if you set it, you don't do it. So, uh... <clears throat> And so also, would... I was a bit... <laughs> hesitant because i saw the two names i thought i'm not going to be able to do that that's really hard days <laughs> all right um so yeah i i haven't done it by the way but but you, i don't know if you remember in the last episode and again if you want to email us the men who talk at outlook.com we talked about um how most nightclubs in films just look terrible and boring or just hateful um and utah smith has chipped in and said he's, he's actually got a couple that he thinks would would be good so let us know what you think about this Nightclub in Collateral looks like a banging joint that you could probably have a good time in. And possibly the nightclub from Exit Wounds with Steven Seagal. That one looked like it might be a bit of fun too. I'll have a think about that. Well, some other good nightclubs. So, yeah, what's up? So, yeah, that was. Um, I haven't. I saw Collateral once when I was really drunk, so I don't remember it very well. I just know that Audio Slave had some music in it. Well, I think with Collateral, I think it's a. It's kind of a default. Uh, it's Michael Mann, so anything that Michael Mann puts on the screen looks really cool. So by default, you, you probably want to go there. Like I, I suspect that there are other club <coughs> scenes in his movies, like Miami Vice and stuff like that, where it'd be like, yeah, I could go there. I could imagine that. That'd be all right. Um. um so because he, he always chooses some pretty decent music and. The lighting's always lush, so yeah. I could live in a Michael Mann movie, that's basically what I'm trying to say. Except maybe (laughs) The Keep, that might be pushing it a bit far. Haunted Nazi (laughs) Castle, might be a bit much. That's what I call my ass when I go to the doctor. (laughs) Oh, that's my Haunted Nazi Castle, I'm afraid, doctor. You might want to put that corned beef and brown sauce sandwich back down. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then um, he says, oh, you've been your ass, is it? <laughs> yeah, he takes a hefty bite of his lunch. Um, yeah, I, and also um, Utah Smith sent me uh, another another voicemail where apparently Megan Fox is in Bad Boys 2 uh, as, as an uncredited dancer, okay. and which leads us into the Arkansas, which I'll do after this. Um, but Michael Mann, uh, sorry, Michael Bay decided that she was too young to be sat at a bar drinking, like pretending to drink. Mm-hmm. She was only 15 at the time. So what he did was he put it in in sort of a bikini and made her dance on a podium. And That's what Utah Smith pointed out is that, yeah, it's much more appropriate to, instead of getting a teenager to pretend to drink fake lager, it's probably better for the audience if you actually make her do a sexy dance. <laughs> so thanks to Utah for that. So this is... Uh, unless you've got anything else, Drew, but I'll, I'll hurtle into the Arkansas now. Um, yes, let's I'll, do it. I'll, I'll kick off with Utah Smiths because um, it does lead us nicely into it. Oh. Ernest Bonine was in red with Bruce Willis, who was in um, Armageddon with Peter Damari, who was in Bad Boys 2 with Megan Fox. Now, here's where my cameos kick in. She is uncredited but she is in it she's in the first intro scenes in the nightclub of bad boys 2 when everyone's taking e she's one of the dancers on one of the tables she's in it for like a second um also just tying in that in with uh, the other part uh that nightclub in bad boys 2 that'd be a nightclub i'd like to go to <laughs> Like it'd be so funny if you could just like press a button and like go go into like scene sequences of movies and just see if you'd have a nice time in the nightclub that they've created, and mark them out of ten. I'd listen to that podcast. I wouldn't listen to this one. No. Maybe we could just maybe we should just cancel this one and just focus solely on vaguely palatable nightclubs and movies. (laughs) <laughs> it is a weird thing because you'd think that they would like you say with with um michael mann by the way is on um was a recent interviewee on mark maron's oh, podcast yes. and that, that was have, really interesting i have yeah. listened to that he's yeah he's a, an interesting guy he's full on and it, you know he takes his craft seriously yeah he also, he also old, sorry go on he just he sounds like an old man now yes uh yeah and he did mention that he's working on heat too which yeah, it's an interesting concept. I'm not sure how that would work. I know he's written a novelization, I think. Anyway. Yeah, well, when he was talking about the novelization, he was saying it's set back and showing as they were kids and as they get into it, then it's flashing forward. I There's um, something about there's something about any medium that is set between two part time periods that is a bit of a temple rubber for me. I don't know what it is. I think I have a problem with that, especially with something like Heat, where the characters are so kind of part of the allure of them is they are so mysterious and and they kind of like the maturity of the script and the performances and um it it suggests uh you know that they've got these lives they've got they've got heavy histories behind them sort of thing and it's almost like they they kind of occasionally mention having worked with such and such. You know, it isn't none of it's none of it's told. It's just it's just shown sort of thing. It's like on their faces in the way they act with each other and stuff. And it's like I'm not sure you need all of that stuff to be spelled out. It's just like you can see it on the screen in the movie, like all of their professionalism based on all their 
work they've done with each other in the past. It just kind of works <clears throat> on its own terms. I don't I need the backstory. I always think with it when this kind of conversation crops up, I remember something you said about it follows where and then luckily it didn't happen. Um where the when the first one was so successful, one of the producers said oh yeah, we're going to, you know, the next film is going to be a kind of origin story because everyone's thinking about where this entity came from. And I thought, I'm pretty sure no one is. And 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 that has sort of set a seed in my mind because I thought, why not like, take Heat as an example? Like you say, everything's so so sort of richly drawn and the, everything you need is in the movie, which is why it's a good film. And I, I've never watched any film or any TV show and gone away from it, thought, I wonder what those characters were like when they were younger. Or... I wonder why they're like that. I, it, it's never been a thought that's occurred to me because you, you watch a film and like you say, sometimes the allure of it and what, what what makes it so good and such a positive experience is is that it's told in a way that the the, the mystery that's sort of there is, is written into it. So you should have that feeling, this kind of hazy understanding of what their fully rounded characters are like. You shouldn't, I don't need an origin story. I don't need more. Yeah. And especially with horror movies, and like I always refer to the original Alien, and there's like a, a scene in that movie where they obviously they find this derelict ship, and they climb aboard, and it's so weird, and it's of course H.R. Geiger design and stuff, and they're exploring it, and it's utterly mysterious and dark, and they and they come across the space jockey as it's called, and it's sort of this huge monstrous creature that's been kind of calcified and locked in place and it's clearly been there you know for well however many hundreds of years or whatever but the point is you don't know what it is it's some weird alien creature you don't know what it is and and it's mysterious and there's like there's a moment where they walk away from this space jockey and they've all had their torches on it and they walk away and the torchlight fades and you can and the camera stays on the face of this space jockey and it's like, and it's sort of clad in darkness, but it just lingers on it a little bit as if to say, like, this is a mystery that will never be understood. And that's what makes it kind of so creepy. It's like, wow, you just found this weird thing in the middle of deep space. You've got no idea what it is. You're never going to find out what it is. And that is what makes it scary in itself. But of course, what Ridley Scott then did was like 30 years later decided, ah, you know, wouldn't it be really interesting to do an entire film and possibly an entire trilogy based on where that space jockey came from? And it's like, no, it's a question no one was asking. <laughs> and and that's the point. It's like it worked purely specifically because of its mystery. Now you've ruined that with a, a terrible, a really terrible movie with an awful script. So why do it? Why do it? I believe you're referring to Prometheus there. Yes. <laughs> um, on the subject of the whole two, two um, timeline thing, I remember uh, someone I follow on Twitter was said that they'd written a book recently and they took a snapshot of a review and it's set in like the 1960s or the 1940s and 2021. Um, and they'd written it a few years ago. And a review on Amazon had said, I couldn't take this book seriously because when it cut back to 2021, like the coronavirus wasn't mentioned, it wasn't dealt with at all. Mm. And I thought, I, I think you might be thick. <laughs> I think you might be a thick person. But yeah, it's weird. What, um, because uh, my, my brother was telling, my brother Transvaal was telling me something the other day about um, 
Oh, it could have been Resident Evil. It was some, we were chatting about something, and he said someone had made a comment that oh, I, I can't watch, I can't watch that film because I don't believe in zombies. Say, for example, and I right. thought yeah, you can watch them. It's weird. To, it's almost like when you watch a film, if it's about ghosts, you you don't have to believe in ghosts to watch a film yeah. about ghosts. You can suspend your disbelief and just because the the world of the film is its own thing. And I just thought that just seems like a real limited like if you can't make that leap in your imagination right if you can't suspend your disbelief just for that that period of time it's like that would mean that but i don't believe in anything that happens in any horror film i watch and yet i keep watching them yeah it's a weird it it must be a weird mindset to be in because if you take that to its extreme you'd have them sitting and they they flop home and they put the telly on and friends is on and they say, well, they wouldn't be able to afford these apartments. And then and then they've got a calculator that works out there like tax brackets and stuff. You think, I don't think, I think you can just watch something and not really, like really judge every scene in the real world. Yes, you would have thought some of the pleasure was, in fact, seeing things presented that are unbelievable. Like what Michael Rooker wears in the dark half, for example. <laughs> When he comes out of the gym. Right, so the Arkansas. Yes. <laughs> um, Who was it again? I, is it, so it's Ernest Borgnine to Megan Fox, is that? To Megan Fox. Yeah, and right, and okay. I have to say, I've when I get messages from people about the Arkansas, and for the for the new listeners, the Arkansas is a, a game we've created where you have to get from uh, one actor to another in as few steps as possible. Uh, and we try to make it a, a man and a woman. And also... And uh, only through films they've acted in. So yeah, so it's not no, no directors, directors or cinematographers, right, right. anything yeah. like that. But um, what, what, so what's and yeah, the Arkansas comes from Alan Arkin to Robert's Dar. But what, 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 what tickles me is that every now and again, um, I'll get sent these Arkansas answers, and I'll get pictures or snapshots or screenshots of people's thought processes, and I absolutely love them. Like whether it's just a load of bubbles and circles and lines. Or like a Gantt chart or a Venn diagram. We had one from Max today, and he said, "I can't get, I can't get below a four stepper." And then he <laughs> sent me a screenshot of Notepad in his computer, and it was a block of text, <laughs> desperately trying to do it, and oh, um, and, and calling Shia LaBeouf LaBeef, but only for his own amusement because obviously he didn't know that he was going to send that to anyone. So we'll kick off with Max. Uh, who said so yeah utah smith had a three-stepper uh max said uh there's he just said multiples in as almost as like a like a mad scientist trying to whittle down the perfect formula but always unable to um ernest borgnine was an escape from new york with kurt russell who's in it the hate flight with samuel L. jackson who was with brad plitton fury with shia labeef uh who was with fox and transformers ernest borgnine was in escape from new york with kurt russell's and Hate flight with samuel L. jackson who was in dial three with willis who was in midnight the switchgrass with megan fox Ernest Borgnine was in Escape from New York with Kurt Russell, who was in Overboard who, uh, with Goldie Horn, who was in Death Becomes with Willis, who was in Midnight with Switch Grass with Parks. And Ernest Borgnine was in The Poseidon Adventure with Gene Hackman, who was in Enemy of the State with Will Smith, who was in iRobot with Shia LaBeouf, who was in Transform with Megan Fox. So, Mac, uh, you, it's a force that you can't do it. <laughs> Your brain will not let you work beyond that. So, uh, And there were so many more on the page you sent me. It was brilliant. Um, my dad, by the way, when we were over here, and he idly, he doesn't listen to the podcast, and he said, what's, what's the Arkansas? And I said, oh, it's Ernest Borden and Megan Fox. And he kind of closed his eyes and bowed his head for a second. And then he said, well, Ernest Borgnine, uh, Sabakit, wrestling escape from New York, who was in Tango and Cash with Sylvester Stallone. 
uh, who's in Expendables 4 with Megan Fox. I thought that was quite impressive, wasn't <laughs> it? Was it? pretty good off the top of your head. Yeah, so fair play. Um, uh, our regular and occasional co-host, Laszlo, says, Howdy, here is my effort, a lowly four-stepper. Ernest Borgnum was in Poseidon Adventure with Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman was in Unforgiven with Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman was in Red with Bruce Willis. And Bruce Willis was in Midnight in the Switchgrass with Megan Fox. Red will come back again for the winner, by the way, for this this episode. And the last two are from the same person. We had Ben and Lee. Ernest Borgnine was in Basketball with Denham Elliott, who was in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark with Harrison Ford, who was in Indiana Jones, The Crystal Skull with Shia LaBeouf, who was in Transformers with Megan Fox. And minutes later, my phone vibrated again, and it just said, here comes the two-stepper. And this is the winner for this week. Megan Fox was in Midnight in the Switchgrass with Bruce Willis, who was in Red with Ernest Borgnine. So many people mentioned Red and didn't click that Ernest Borgnine is in it with Bruce Willis. I've never seen it, so I wouldn't so, have got that. So I think a lot of people are going to be are going to be kicking themselves with that. Brutal. Um, so yeah, that that is uh, that is the preamble done. It's a longer one than usual. Um, so let's let's talk movies, Rupert. What are you uh, What have you got for us this week? Um, I've got a few this week. I've got two true life dramas, two Eddie Murphy movies, a mega blockbuster. Classic modern crime drama and a superhero movie that had a huge impact, but I'm not talking about the box office. Well, what have I? If you're going to do it like that, I'll look at my tabs and say I've got a light horror franchise, a video game documentary, a, vi- a superhero movie, a bad movie, another bad, <laughs> a surprisingly decent movie, a good movie, a fun movie. And a bad movie. So a lot, lot, lots to dig into then. <laughs> um, right. Do you, you want to you kick off? Yeah, let's kick off with uh, classic modern crime drama. So uh, Traffic uh, is on Freebie, which is the free prime channel. Used to be IMD, IMDb TV. Um, yeah, so this is Steven Soderbergh's drugs war crime drama which is based on a british tv series it was made in 2000 and it's sort of somewhere between the multi-thread narrative style popularized by tarantino at the time and also the great like southern border thrillers that you got a lot of in the noughties like three burials of Melchiadas estrada and is, Morris is this, Peros. i'm watching this in the cinema sorry is this mm. is this film very gold with its filter well yes there is a bit of that going on um yeah so well but i can kind of explain that okay no no sorry that's the only i I watched it i was like 16 so i i'm very yeah um so there are three threads to the plot there the cartel wars in tijuana as uh this washington drug czar with a heroin addicted daughter and there's this key witness who's under police watch and it's all about the so-called war on drugs and all of these stories interconnect. And they basically function to to view the issue from multiple levels, sort of like highest government and then through supply and down to demand at street level. It's amazingly well written by uh, Stephen Gagan. And I think the reason 
the script is so good is because it's so unpatronizing it doesn't constantly it doesn't need to constantly clarify who people are or what, why they're doing what they're doing it's just like it trusts the audience to be drawn in gradually and understand it's just a it's a grown-up film uh, albeit about grown-ups not really knowing what the hell to do about the situation and um yeah like you mentioned Soderbergh uses these extreme color grades to to pick the different regions so like Tijuana is like it's sort of golden sepia tinted it almost looks scorched and then you got washington which is this deep clinical blue and then the story with the cops um and this uh key witness that's sort of like a standard real world filter i suppose i think it works pretty well um it it instantly tells you kind of where you are when it's jumping about and that so but it's combined with this quite um verite handheld style which is pretty cool works pretty well the cast is amazing michael douglas catherine zeta jones don cheadle louis Gilbert for grace yeah, yeah. he t- i did not not mentioning type of grace but he's quite good in it because he plays a little prick so <laughs> uh miguel ferrer the late miguel ferrer um james brolin albert finney good stuff um best of all is benicio del toro he actually won best actor Oscar for this i think he's this mexican cop and I do think that like ambivalence is the, probably the toughest thing for a, an actor to, to portray. And, and his character is just so full of <laughs> like mixed feelings about what he's doing. He's he's sort of semi-corrupt working in a corrupt system, but he's got a good heart sort of thing. But yeah, they're all, all the actors are good. The journey that Michael Douglas goes on in this movie is this kind of distraught father is very impactful. And he gets the last line and it's a absolute killer. So and then you get uh, Don Cheadle and Louis Guzman, who are the cops, and their banter with Miguel Ferrer is genuinely funny. And I think St- Steven Soderbergh is just so good at staying focused on the humanity in in his movies, e- even if it's just in like s- subtle expressions um, on people's faces. Like there's one scene which. It's almost like a montage scene, really, where Michael Douglas, like this drug czar, goes to this like senator's conference thing. And he's just wandering around chatting to people. And you just get snippets of, you know, snippets of their kind of opinion on how to beat like drug dealers and stuff. And it and it is just gradually across the scene. You just see his kind of you see the hopeful look on his face fade away as he realizes that none of these people have got a, a single clue of how to deal with this situation. It's really, really cleverly done. Um, but yeah, I, but most of what I love about the film is that it doesn't preach and it doesn't provide any clear answers. Uh, it, it presents this situation in all its complexity in a fairly objective way. And whatever your preconceptions are about the drugs trade, you just won't come up. You can't come away with those preconceptions unchallenged. And I think of all of Soderbergh's issue movies, which I'd put this like alongside like side effects and Unsane and Aaron Brockovich, I think this is the best one. And it's the most balanced, I think. There is one warning, though. Um, the the stream that I watched on Prime or Freebie, as it's known, it doesn't have any subtitles during the Mexico scenes. Now, this is quite a problem because obviously they're just speaking exclusively Spanish. And I found this OK because I've seen the film before, um, but it's essentially unwatchable, really, for non-Spanish newcomers. So 
find it elsewhere perhaps i, I don't know but it's it is a pretty this, big oversight this seems like a pretty big important film for it to not have subtitles on prime yeah i don't know whether i mean i'm not sure that all films have them kind of uh hard coded into them possibly not i don't know this clearly doesn't because they're not there so i don't know uh, it was an ish I'm glad you talked about that because this is a film that's always, you know, it pops up on my radar um, when I sit down and think of what films I want to rewatch. But mm. I think it occupies a space in my mind where it seems, you know, as as you know, uh, as everyone knows who listens to this podcast, I tend to avoid heavy duty films. Um, but this, from what you just said, it just seems like a a good film as opposed to something that okay, it might cha- challenge your your views on something, yeah. but it's not it's not it's not a real tearjerker. Not oh no, it's not like that. No, it's yeah. it's it's I mean it's it uses a lot of, you know, kind of like crime movie tropes. I mean, I'd say it was, it's probably a little bit more realistic than say something like Heat or something like that. But it's in that kind of realm of slightly fanciful, uh, larger than life kind of situations. Oh, you know, because I mean, it's all it's all quite structured in such a way as to have the greatest impact rather than be most realistic if you see what i mean i just realized is this the film where um michael douglas met Catherine zeta jones almost certainly it was uh, yeah because i just realized how much she's kind of fallen out of the public eye because i saw her in a film a few years ago but she is she still acting i don't know i haven't seen her in anything in a long time i wonder um yeah she's but she's she's great in this and she's pretty I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you're not. You're not a liar, Rupert. Are you? Um, well, I'll I'll move on from that. Then that is what I'm going to rewatch. Cause definitely. You, you've definitely sold sold me on that. Um, this is a, a franchise I watched a while ago now, so this is going to be a very kind of brief, uh, brief run through of it. And this is the Mummy trilogy. Um, the Stephen Summers oh, yes. from 1999. Um. And it's just to say, I went through a phase of. Well, I think when I when we did the last podcast, I talked about Sahara, which I went off. Uh, not that one with James Belushi. The other one with Matthew McConaughey and Steve Zahn. Yeah, um, I saw that in the cinema. Yeah. I I watched the Mummy trilogy, and I didn't mention it in the last podcast. And then we did a state of play in between, and it's kind of gone out of my mind. So I just wanted to briefly go through it now. So the trilogy is: it's you've got the Mummy from '99. The Mummy Returns 2001, and then seven years later, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon, Emperor, with Jet Li. And it, it really does look, when I watched the first one, it felt like the first film in a trilogy. Like, uh, you know, you've got uh, everything you need to film. You've got Brendan Fraser and Arnold Vosloo. I don't know what else you need. <laughs> and it felt like it was, you know, with Rachel Weiss, and it's setting down this template, and it's kind of silly, light fun. And then they made The Mummy Returns, which I much preferred. And thought, yeah, this this just feels like everything's set down now. It's mm. it's fine. No, actually, I've, I'm looking at this. Sorry, this is how long ago it was. I've got this the wrong way round. When I watched the Mummy with uh, so Brendan Fraser and uh, Arnold Vosloo and Rachel Weisz, it was it was much more th- this you know introducing the characters and there's some silliness going on with James Nesbitt with the shakiest accent, by the way. People talk about Keanu Reeves in Dracula. Da, 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 da. James Nesbitt in the Mummy trilogy, I think you'll find. His accent is everywhere. Um, and you've got this sort of, the way they introduce all the characters, it's all well and good, and it's this silly thing, and it leads leads up to um, 
leads up to the, these CG battles, which are kind of fine for the time, right? And I thought, oh, that's the first step in a trilogy that I was like, right, I haven't seen these before, so that that was fine. I'm in the mood for these light-hearted sort of family thrill rides. Boom. Then, um, can I just mention, is it James Nesbitt or John Hannah you're thinking of? Oh, sorry, it is John Hannah, yeah. yeah. Do they look similar? Why did I say that, then? They're kind of same generation, and yeah, I guess there's sort of a... I think they've got a similar kind of character about them. Oh, right, okay. Jo- John Hannah, then, yeah, I do, I do apologise. Who was the one that did um, A Touch of Cloth? I think that was John Hanna. <laughs> right, yeah, he's, he's a pro then. Um, and then The Mummy Returns, I watched this literally, I watched these films in the same day, right? So this is two years later, and some other CG is worse. But the problem is, it does this thing where the first one, the, the whole kind of rollicking yes. thrill ride traveling the globe, and there's even a scene in the first one where it shows a superimposed image of like a Cessna traveling as a red line moves across a map, which is a sign of quality in these sorts of films. <laughs> the mummy returns. It pushes forward to when they're just like a bored married couple and they've got a mm-hmm. really irritating son who's really sarcastic nice. and grumpy. And, and it spends a lot of time focusing on that. The start of the film, they're just bored and they're obviously trying to find something to sort of spice up their marriage by going on maybe another, another one of these these sort of mystical quests and it just it it just really feels almost like a like a some 70s british comedy where it's silly silly haha sort of humor that goes on far too long until the film actually kicks into gear and imhotep is resurrected uh, arnold vosler's character um and it leads up to the, the scorpion king and the scorpion king played by dwayne the rock johnson is some of the most astonishing CG I have ever <laughs> encountered. The whole final sequence of that film, um, but yeah, it it just it just the, the the focus on the familial side of it it really drags the film down because it's not funny and it feels very dated. And I know the film is sort of set in the forties around that sort of time, but it feels dated in a way that it must have been at the time. It's this really forced, awkward. Um, silly look away whistling nonchalantly humor that just really didn't work for me and the film just really felt like it dragged on because of it and then i watched the mummy tomb of the dragon emperor and it was i would say it was sort of better than the second because there's more there's more action in it um but it, it just felt the third one just felt perfunctory it felt like something that really did need to be made mm. and of course they've replaced this irritating child that's eight years old in the second one with this swashbuckling, irritating teenager in the third one, like I don't, I don't get my mum and dad. I, I can do my own thing. I can get along by myself. And I, I just thought, I'm not sure why this is a trilogy. To be honest, I was, it probably made sense at the time. I, thought, I enjoyed the first one. The second one, I was kind of tired of. And this seven years later, people must have got the cinema and thought, I think I'll just go and watch the first one again after this. To be honest. So yeah, it was. It just it feels like a very tired trilogy of films that you don't really need to revisit beyond the first one now, right. unless for some reason it holds a place of nostalgia in your mind and you just want to watch them all again. You know. I think I've seen I'm, the first two. I remember the CG in the second one. Gosh. Yeah. It was. I mean, it, it, I had to wait until Spawn came along before I could uh, 
before oh, that could geez. be superseded. I'm just looking, looking at the cancelled fourth film, uh, Maria Bello. Oh, Maria Bello, by the way, who replaces Rachel Weisz in the third film. Jesus Christ, the way the way they acknowledge that her character has just been like recast. It shows her reading a book about the about the first two adventures because she's an author now in a. Mm-hmm. And someone puts their hand up. She's reading, reading it in this sort of hat that covers her face. And someone says, I've got a question. And she's doing this live reading of her book. Oh, do you, do you, do you feel like, you know, the same, the same, uh, do you feel the same as you did when you wrote this book or something oh, like God. that? And she looks up and obviously the camera zooms in. It's Maria Bell and Rachel Weiss. And she says, no, in fact, you could say that I'm a completely different person now. Wow. And I thought you could fuck off. <laughs> if that if that's the level this film is working at, I'm not on board. But so cancelled fourth film, good naturally, didn't need to go on. The Scorpion Skin spin-off, the sort of Scorpion King spin-off, 2002, 2008, 2012, 2015, 2018. So there's more wow. films in the spin-off than the main thing. Scorpion King Five, Book of Souls. <laughs> I'm just looking at the cast. Zach McGowan. I don't even know who that is. Who? I know Nathan Jones was an ex wrestler. Might have to watch these. Yeah, <laughs> well, seen, yeah. yeah, the Scorpion King. Yeah, so uh, I'll have to watch that. But um, so yeah, the Mummy films. Watch the first one. Don't bother with the others. Excellent. That sounds like many a franchise. Um, okay, I won't. Um, Thor, Love oh. and Thunder, which I saw that's at the what, cinema. That's the names of your feet, isn't it? <laughs> That's no, my dogs you're thinking of. Um, <laughs> my feet are called Crash and Burn. Um, <laughs> and uh, my feet are called Brian Trenchard and Smith. Uh, right. Yes, Thor, Love and Thunder. So, okay. yeah, Thor has really become the kind of irreverent flagpole comedy of the Marvel Universe, really. Because, like, after... The was it called the Dark World, the second one, which was dark. You know, they kind of turned it around with the third one, Ragnarok, uh, which is where they brought on board uh, Taika Waititi, who of course started out on Flight of the Concords and then did What We Do in the Shadows, and then he also got praise and awards for Jojo Rabbit, which is that comedy about the Holocaust, which I don't think was that funny or clever to be honest, but it seems quite well liked. That, yeah, that's another film that I, I, I it was on my radar because I, I do like Taika Waititi, and I yeah. thought that seems like that seems like a premise that is inherently not funny, and I, I'd never yeah. bother watching it. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really get along with that. But the, um, yeah, so Thor four, this is, I guess, um, it starts with Christian Bale, uh, who's who loses daughter, um, and she's dead, <laughs> just to be clear, um. And he uh-huh. is ruddy incensed about this. And he promises to devote the rest of his existence to ridding the universe of all gods. So there you go. Um, meanwhile, Thor is hanging out with Guardians of the Galaxy. And when he finds out about Christian Bale's plan, he off he trots to defeat him. And on the way, he'll need to stop off at Zeus's place to grab a bolt of lightning, which he needs to kill him, I suppose. Zeus is played very unselfconsciously by Russell Crowe, wearing a pleated skirt. So that's probably the best sequence, to be honest. 
Now, obviously, the overarching joke with Thor is that it's the scale and the subject matter of it make it the least natural fit for Taika Waititi's brand of kind of sort of mumblecore comedy almost, isn't it? It's very irreverent. But and he directed this, did he? Yes. And I, right. but I think that's ex- that, that kind of ostensibly that kind of juxtaposition is exactly why he's invited back because it's an effective formula for comedy because it's like you go big, you go grand, you go theatrical, and then you punch it all, punch all that grandiosity with something frivolous or ironic punchline sort of thing. So I think they got the balance just about right with Ragnarok. And it is notable mm. that that film was not written by Taika Waititi. However, Love and Thunder was written by him. And I think that's why the balance is off in this one. Because, you know, think back to Jojo Rabbit and the fact that obviously, again, think about that situation. It's like the worst possible situation, the Holocaust, combined with irreverent comedy. So it's like, okay, so and then you look at Love and Thunder and it's like you've got the tribulations of cosmic gods, you know, as if that's not heavy enough for you. But then you've got this this genocidal grief over a dead child. And then he even throws in a character with like stage four cancer as well. So you can kind of see the formula at work here, a taboo subject juxtaposed against this irreverent humor. uh, That's almost the opposite of the gravitas that is demanded by the subject matter. So I get it. Yeah. So it's the same kind of formula. It is only two hours, this movie, which seems short for a modern blockbuster, but it felt longer because you know every scene will be paced the same way, like wading through the punchlines, scrabbling around for the drama, really. And it suffers from that increasingly common Marvel problem. Maybe it's always been a Marvel problem. I don't know. But it's where like the talking scenes have clearly been directed by the director, whereas it's like the CGI battles seem to have just been handed over to the laptop team. It's like, it's like the CGI battles uh, are authorized by the director without actually being authored, if you see what I mean. So that's a problem. It was a real problem with those bloody, um, what are the ones with Benedict Cumberbatch? Uh, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange. Yeah, that was, a, it was really, really clear in them, but it's also a problem here. And there's this interminable final sequence in Love and Thunder, which it seems to be aiming for operatic tragedy. But by that point, it's like you've just been deliberately deflating all of this drama for the last 90 minutes. So why should I suddenly take it seriously now? You've like you spent the rest of the runtime training my brain not to care about the fate of anyone um, because you haven't taken anything seriously until now. And then suddenly I'm expected to just like weep for the fate of these characters like now. So you've gone the other direction. You lost me. So, yeah, I thought it was pretty bad. And I think just definitely a massive step down from Ragnarok. And I would wait for the Disney Plus release. I'm trying to think if I've seen Ragnarok. What happened in Ragnarok? Um, I don't remember the exact details, but there's a rainbow bridge. Was it the one that starts off... um, Oh, is it the one with Carl Urban in? Yeah. Uh, is he? I can't. Yes. Uh, yes, I, I like so. that. I like. I, I like that one. Yeah, yeah, I did like that. It's one. the one which introduces the rock guy. 
as in he's literally made of rocks and i think yeah maybe voice played by take away tiki yeah because yeah. i thought that was funny because again yeah. it cut through it cut through his character but but i think yeah. it balanced it with uh, the drama pretty well oh i remember it doing so maybe i'm just exhausted by that particular formula but i think this just pushes the absurdity and the farcical part of it too far uh so that by the time the kind of dramatic payoff comes along it's like uh, no i've been watching a different movie up to this point sorry i i know that i will end up watching this on disney plus and i oh, would yeah. just think that's oh, all right I, I know i know i'll get no other it's why if I, i'm going to talk about one today and it, it's just in fact i may as well do it next because it makes sense but it's, yeah. it's the same it's the same thing with because i watched spider-man no way home um and to be honest, it almost feels silly on our podcast talking about Marvel movies now. You're obviously much more eloquent about it than I am. But I just go into this. I'm in a specific frame of mind when I want to watch a Marvel movie. And it, and it's that I don't want to be challenged. I don't I don't want to be challenged. I just want things to happen in front of my eyes that my eyes think, oh, that's bright. That's breezy. Um, and so even that's, with this. That's in colour. Brilliant. Yeah. So yeah, easy, yeah. please. Um, and and so yeah, I put on Spider-Man: No Way Home. I think through Disney Plus, possibly through Paramount Plus. Which is something that. I've also got. Um, Paramount I'm, Plus, by the way, Rupert, that is a channel that does not mind buffering. I thought when it, it started buffering, I thought, oh, it's 1997. I didn't realize. Oh no, it's just the only channel that I've ever watched the buffers. I noticed um, this as well because obviously Prime. I mean, they obviously have super duper servers, I guess, because I don't never have problems with that. But any channel which is kind of embedded within Prime, I guess they have their own servers. And yeah, sometimes whew, Shudder, <laughs> Shudder was an issue. Well, as Shudder well. was Shudder was mm. bad. Yeah, Paramount Black when it kicked kicked in, and I thought, I thought, have I downloaded a film from the early two thousands off the internet, and it's a really low bit rate? And then it kind of kicked into gear, and I thought, Chris, don't make me pause this and wait for a minute like I did twenty years ago. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was fine after that. But yeah, Spider Man watched Spider Man No Way Home. Um, obviously, I watched Doctor Strange last last episode. Didn't mind it, and I didn't mind this. Uh, it was it was. I haven't seen any of the Andrew Garfield Spider Man films. So when they brought in the multiple uh, multiverse thing, right. I you know it was just like oh yeah, the two films I've never seen and games based on them I've never played. But it was nice to see um, Tobey Maguire again, and I I liked his character a lot in this film, and. I have enjoyed watching it with my eyes. And that is Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> Thank you, Roger Ebert. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, yeah, you know, you watch it, when you watch these, these films and um, you come across you, things like lock into your mind, even if it, whether it's a haircut, like I'm going to talk about in Hitman's Run or, um, or like an emotional impact, but there's just, there's something about Marvel films that just instantly everything in me turns off i think yeah i know what you mean it's like there's nothing to grab hold of in terms of like unless you're particularly invested in these characters like Mm. for the rest of us there's nothing like there's not even any amusing clothes or anything because they're just so they're just so competent so you can't really you know you're never going to criticize the cinematography or the editing or anything like that because you know so much money thrown at them and so much competence in the cast and crew it's like yeah there's nothing really to criticize but there's nothing to get excited about either is there 
it seems because, like now it seems like now they're coasting on the, the the nostalgia and the love and respect that people have for the character. So by just simply introducing a character or even reintroducing a character from a slightly different as like I can imagine how people go bonkers over this because it's like oh my god, Sony or Marvel you know, use some of the licensing yeah. and you think that's not enough for a two and a half hour film, is it? No, um, and also it's got nothing. I mean, that's just why, how can people get excited about licensing rights? You know. Uh, to do with like these huge mega mega global studios it's like that's not exciting at all and i know what you mean about it's that kind of all rightness of marvel in particular it it feels i think what it feels like is that there's almost like an uncanny valley effect when you're watching stuff like this which is like it's like it's been it's a film that's been crafted by ai like if if an ai computer had learned exactly what it is what's needed to satisfy audiences then it would like it would put all these into its algorithm and then it would spit out this movie and it'd be like it's ticking all the boxes but i'm still don't i'm still not excited by it i don't still don't it's like there's something uncanny about it about its kind of glossy perfection in a way, there's nothing. It just doesn't feel like it was made by humans. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, absolutely. It, it, and also with with Spider-Man, especially. I mean, I know you talked about weightless CG with um, the Doctor Strange films, but of course with Spider-Man now, there's scenes towards the end of this where you've got three Spider-Men in very similar suits, just swinging round webbing, and you think this just isn't exciting anymore. This is no. like there's no there's no sense of weight or threat. Because there's such a web of intricacy in the Marvel Universe now that it's just seeing what they come up with next. And I was looking at, a, uh, at the, the release data for the next, next like, up till 2025, and it's just, Christ, yeah. it's just stuff coming out. And I thought, <laughs> this, just, like, this is all going to be so similar. Like, you know what it reminds s- me of? Like, this, I know what you mean, because I, I, watching the doctor's last doctor strange and watching love and thunder and i they got a lot of very heavy cgi sequences and i thought it looked awful and and i think i wonder if we're hitting another moment like remember in the early 2000s when he had off like really cgi heavy films where it just looked bad and it was just cgi for the sake of cgi you know like clash of the titans and stuff like that it was just so terrible and and I wonder if we're entering that kind of phase again where it's like they kind of run out of ideas. So it's like it's they're not using CGI inventively. All they're doing is just chucking more of it at the screen. I wonder if it's the same same thing. I wonder if we'll look back at this period and think, ooh, really overdid it then, didn't we? Mm. I, it's, I can't imagine that, like, say, 10, 15 years from now when – like for example, if you look at, I know, I know it, it's easy to like the films that I really enjoy watching the sort of eighties and nineties actioners, where you look back and you're taking the piss out of the clothes, and uh, you you get you get a, a bit of fun from them, and maybe some of the the dated dialogue or like silly fights, and you get this kind of visceral thrill from this is how they did things then, this mm. is how this is how things are done now, how much we moved on. I feel like these films are so anodyne that. I just think there's no there's mm. no like longevity in them at all. No, I've I, I, and and 
I, I'm really feeling that as I watch them now. And like I was thinking, I idly thought, I'm really enjoying seeing Tobey Maguire in this. And I thought, would I watch a Spider-Man film where he's in his late 40s and he's breaking <laughs> down and it's more of a character, you know, like his, yeah. it just his, body's, his body is failing him. And I thought, yeah, because then, if we, because then there'd be like, it would fo- I realized every time I idly fixated on um on that sort of thought I thought yeah because then it would be uh there would be emotional involvement there would be a, yeah. it would be a character analysis as as opposed to like I really I could tell in this film when they brought back in um, Alfred Molina or Willem Dafoe did a certain voice or pulled a certain face I thought this is the point when millions of people worldwide would lose their shit but I'm just <laughs> but I'm watching it thinking it's just a man pulling a face. It's it, it is no there's no emotional engagement here for me, and and I and I know that um, Faye's brother was a big fan of the um, uh, the Doctor Strange film with because Sam Raimi and they treated it apparently as like the first Marvel horror, and I thought no it's just the only bits of Sam Raimi I got from that entire film because I forgot until his name came up at the end with the way that his the way that Benedict Cumberbatch face when he was sort of dead was a very dead it sort of style. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, you, you, what you said about the way that obviously the, these the CG sections are so constructed over such a period of time is so expensive that you mm-hmm. can't have any character in those. It's no. it's too it has to be too perfect. So, yeah, you've got like you say, the, the, the spoken word, the, the dialogue pieces are, are maybe where the the director managers to put in a little bit of a stamp of their own personality. And then and then out of that, it's in the hands of the gods sort of thing. And I just. I will continue to watch these films as they pop up basically on Disney Plus, and I think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll check that on. I'm, I'm not in the mood to be challenged or in the mood for anything specific, but I just, I just can't imagine in 20, 30 years people going back and really taking a lot from these films. No, uh, or indeed differentiating between them. <laughs> yeah, because it's so thick and fast now as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, um, why don't? How about I talk about a, a proper superhero film then? You please do. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> the film that made Sean Connery quit acting. Yeah. Right. Not only that, but Stephen Norrington quit directing. I think. <laughs> Bloody hell. No. <laughs> um. But yeah. Um. So League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is on Prime currently. Um, Stephen Norrington, he also, I think he directed Blade as well. Is that true? Yes. Directed Blade, 1998. And I think, well, Blade is arguably the birth of the modern comic book movie, really. And also, I believe it, it may have led the way if not directly inspiring it, but led the way for the success of someone like The Matrix, where it's like a very dark, moody, kind of adult sci-fi thriller. But anyway, so mm. quite an important movie. And then, of course, he made The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in 2003. Bear in mind I mean, as well. But, with, sorry. But before you carry it, I just want to just interject and say that, like, this is a film I watched a weird amount of time, because I would have been 20 when it came out. Mm. And I remember watching this, like, pretty repeatedly at the time. I must have seen it, like, 10, 10 15 times in my life. Mm. And I, I didn't at the time see an issue with it but i haven't seen it since so i'm just okay. intrigued how you're gonna yeah i've never seen it before so this was new okay. to me 
Yeah, so I was just going to say, bear in mind, Sean Connery as well. He turned down roles in The Matrix and Lord of the Rings before signing on to this. So anyway, um, so it's set in 1899 um, in this alternate reality where European governments have access to kind of advanced science like cars and tanks, automatic weapons. And this guy called Alan Quatermain, played by Sean Connery, is recruited to lead a team of superheroes, basically, to prevent World War Three. Um, and they need to stop a bad guy called the Phantom. And it's all this is apparently diesel punk, um, meaning that it, although it's set in the 19th century, they're using the aesthetics and technology from the interwar period being 20s and 30s. So that was new to me. But yeah, um, it's got a similar kind of anachronistic appeal as something like Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes, I suppose. But I found I thought it was really missing. It's Robert Downey Jr. Because the whole team is a bit dour and grim, to be honest. I mean, Sean Connery has gravitas, but he is a bit of a grump. And he is too old for this shit by this point. But some pretty clever editing does make it look like he kicks ass. So they did pretty well there. He's sort of the Batman to the Justice League because he's not. I don't think he's got superpowers of his own. Uh, maybe I blinked and missed him. But anyway, I, I just remember thinking that he's quite practical and just quite lucky. Yes, yeah. yes, very lucky. Um, like there's some weird editing in this movie, and it feels like it was after the event type editing. Like there's one bit where we're presented with this like huge ship that they're going to use called the Nautilus. And you're thinking, Oh, let's, it'd be interesting to see inside that, but no, you see the ship and then it cuts to there's like the streets of Paris. Um, and Connery's just running through the streets of Paris and then they catch Mr. Hyde as in Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, and then, and then it cuts back and they're on the ship and it's like, it's really weirdly edited, but I don't know. I'm sure there were lots of <laughs> editing issues with this movie. Um, yeah. um, and yeah, there's another scene where there's this encounter with a dude with a flamethrower. And basically what they do is the classic style. They punch the canister on his back and it whistles basically like it's going to explode. You know, you're waiting for it just to blow up and you hear the sound effect of an explosion, but you don't actually see an explosion on screen. It's really odd. It's like you just didn't have the footage. Um, but I will say the, the production design is pretty stunning, actually. And especially the ship. Um, it's got this gorgeous, like, curvaceous Indian architecture. And I actually, I quite liked the quietly heroic Indian crew. It's quite a nice touch. And the visual effects are decent, given the fact that it's 2003. They're decent up to a point, I'd say. Like, there's this really impressively staged sequence in Venice where this bomb creates this domino effect on the buildings and they're all starting to collapse around the heroes but then you cut to the final sequence where you got like these two hulk-like dudes just lugging it out and it's just whew, it, it's almost like spawn level bad um oh, really? not quite that bad but whew, yeah it's not even you can um, see what's going on <laughs> yeah yeah it's not it isn't just it isn't a rendition of satan built from 10 polygons and they couldn't even animate him closing his mouth um so it's not that so it's not terrible in terms of action and scope but the plot it really is just an arbitrary framework for a series of 
flashy set pieces really like i suppose one could argue that about most superhero films to be fair but i think superhero films are the best when they get the interpersonal dynamics right and i think that's what's missing here because that affects the set pieces because if you don't have character investment then the set pieces are just arbitrarily they're not just arbitrarily positioned actually in the flow of the narrative they are just arbitrary full stop so you need that part of it and that's what's lacking and and i suppose it is kind of the point i was struggling to make about stranger things last time around that it's like it's so desperate to get to the next climax it forgets that without the personal stakes then the drama is lost from the climax they're actually trying to reach so I, I think another problem with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is that it really lacks an interesting bad guy because they spend so much time setting up the League and just virtually none on fleshing out this bad guy, the Phantom. And Richard Roxburgh is just terrible and he has zero gravitas. And so overall, I think it's got a decent enough first half, but it falls apart in the second half. And it, the production design is nice. Variable visual effects, I'd say. It's more inane, really, than offensively bad. So pretty much par for the course in terms of early 2000s CGI-heavy action movies, really. Yeah, I suppose this falls into that whole weird sort of valley that I enjoy of stuff like this and Van Helsing and Underworld, where I, <laughs> I just I very just much in the, that. League yeah, yeah. I, I think that I think that's and Constantine. I think that's why I just I don't know. There's something about that era that I just don't mind at all. I haven't watched this in a very long time. I will rewatch it, but um. Yeah, I can't. Um, I can't imagine any real reassessments coming along. It'll just be something I watch I, and think, "Oh, I enjoyed that." I enjoyed it more than Thor: Love and Thunder. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> at least, yeah, at least add some nice, interesting production design. I mean, and Sean Connery is, it, he, given the fact that he famously hated working on this films to the extent that he actually stopped doing his day job from there on like you wouldn't be able to tell i mean i suppose his character is just a cantankerous old git anyway but i mean he's still got that kind of movie star quality so i wouldn't say it's yeah it's no definitely no shame to kind of uh log out on this movie i wouldn't say do you know what the difference is between diesel punk and petrol punk I'm guessing Petrol Punk would be a bit later. Would have been like fifties. No, it's, it's about no, it's a, it's about fifteen pence a litre. Wow, that's good, isn't it? No, did you laugh? Did, did, I did, did laugh. You, Sorry, did, I must have gone on mute. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was <laughs> I, I didn't hear a laugh. <laughs> um, the final line from most Joe Pasquale live shows. Um, I'm going to talk really, really briefly about The Man from Toronto, which is the film I turned off oh, geez, um, yeah. halfway through. Um, I popped this I, on. I, by the way, I'll just, let me just mention, I, I put this on. And yes, OK, I was being distracted by a child at the time. But it was it wasn't just on in the background. I it was so. Uninteresting that I actually forgot that it was even on at all it wasn't even like I, I forgot that there was a film on in the background it was that you know i i have to yeah because it's, it's similar to my experience because I, I popped it on and i was watching it as i was doing my dad thing but 
I started off with high hopes in you, I think, because I, I really like Woody Harrelson and I've never seen a film with Kevin Hart in. Um, and I remember you saying it a couple of episodes ago that you like Kevin Hart. You just don't really like his films. He's like a nice man, but no, you don't um, enjoy his movies. Yeah, well, I'm not sure he is that nice a man, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> oh, to, I mean, he's, yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think he is quite a funny guy. And I, I, whenever I've watched his films, I've seen a few of them, like Central Intelligence. I remember genuinely laughing out loud at certain moments in it. But then you have to wade through a lot of just really quite unfunny screeching kind of comedy to get mm. to those moments of genuine wit. Well, this is the whole thing. So for people, this is this is a Netflix movie, and um, just is a it's, it's effectively Woody Harrelson is this man from Toronto, this mythical hitman who comes along and can do anything, kill anyone, and get information out of anyone. And Kevin Hart is on a honeymoon, well, not honeymoon, but a, a sort of weekend break with his lover and gets embroiled in this whole thing when it's like a case of mistaken identity. Um, I want to watch this. I had such low expectations. I thought, oh, this is kind of fun, actually. You know, Kevin Hart is, is fine at that sort of fish out of water uh, playing along sort of thing. And I like yes. Woody Harrelson. And what happened was... I was watching the film and it was doing its thing. And I thought this seems you know, quite functional, quite enjoyable. And then I paused it and I went for a pee. And as I was po- as I went for a pee, I was idly scrolling through my phone about this film. And I saw that it was the, I don't know if it's the director or the producer or the writer had said, oh, actually this takes place in the same world as John Wick and we're planning on having a, uh, bringing them both together and having like the man from Toronto mm-hmm. looking at me, John Wick. And there was something about reading that that I thought, ah, right. And then when I sat back down and pressed play, my 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 brain had switched gear a bit from this to realizing that the level I was watching it at, you know, as in like it's just it's a kind of a, a slightly unfunny buddy comedy, made me realize how much money was in this, if you know what I mean, and like actually how much these two men are getting paid, and the the movies they've got behind them and then i started thinking about the quality of what i was seeing and i looked at it in a different light and thought this isn't some 90s film i've picked up from a charity shop for like 49p that's already on prime starring terry belaya this is this is like a brand new film and my my expectations should be higher and when that happened i real the fatal p if you will i thought this isn't acceptable like the level of enjoyment and the level of quality I'm getting from this isn't acceptable, yeah. and 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 it it stuck with and and the longer the film goes on, the more ridiculous it gets, and the sillier the stunts get, and the more irritating Kevin Hart gets, and it got to about an hour and fifteen in. How long's the film? It's two hours, and about and I thought no, I'm not I'm not willing to do this, and I I turned it off, mm. and um, yeah, I just think that there's when this much money's thrown at something i expect more and i realized then so i went from putting up with it to realizing no i this people people should get more more bang for the buck than this so it's, it's not good enough, i no. i didn't i didn't make it through okay yeah it, it, it literally vanished before my eyes it was like evaporating from it, it was evaporating from my consciousness, even though it was on at the time. That's quite yeah. impressive. Yeah, I, I like I was just watching it, and the whole thing about 
the joke it never the joke and the and the level of um the way in which the characters interact never moves on from their first meeting it's that there's nothing more than it's almost like the director walks up before every scene in the film says right kev you're a fish out of water Mm. woody you're a miserable hitman go and it never moves on from that in any scene oh dear there's no development at all i won't try again then okay uh what was that that's on netflix isn't it yeah that was the man from toronto on netflix yeah. yeah uh war dogs is also on netflix uh this was made in 2016 and this was todd phillips basically his transition from bro comedy the hangover to joker i guess because that would have been the film he then made it's based on real events although very loosely i would say i mean not least because the narrator is a professional bullshitter to be fair um that bullshitter is played by Miles Teller, and he he plays a massage therapist who's desperate to move on to bigger and better things. He meets an old friend from school, played by Jonah Hill, who is already in the arms business, but um, they kind of team up, and with Miles Teller's character, his charisma, they go from strength to strength, uh, financially speaking anyway, and eventually wind up with a deal of the century called the Afghan Deal, um, and this is where things start to fall apart from them, logistically speaking. I mean, most of their activities are done in this murky world of online arms dealing. It's like an eBay-like site just for, like, second-hand arms. It's quite bizarre. And But the problems start when they have to get their hands dirty and actually visit some of the war-ravaged countries that they're exploiting. So this film has a, it has a lot of Tarantino and Scorsese flourishes, I'd say. There are hints of Wolf of Wall Street in here. Not least because these two bros are intensely unlikable and amoral. It's watchable because of Miles Teller's performance. He does at least bring across some kind of internal struggle. Like he's trying to balance his nefarious work with his marriage. But the real love story, of course, is between the two men. And they do refer to each other a lot as bro. And it reminded me a little bit of Michael Douglas and Andy Garcia in Black Rain when they just constantly call each other babe. And it like I say, the interesting part of the movie is that the, the sheer absurdity of this system that allows this sort of behavior is quite well explained. And I think that keeps it rattling along at a nice pace. I, I am a firm believer that you don't need to like or sympathize with characters in films to maintain an interest. And the film I always refer to as evidence of this is Scarface, where literally everyone ends up utterly reprehensible. And that's apt because there's, in War Dogs, there's a constant reference point uh, to Scarface. He's got this big poster on his wall. And, and I think it's set largely in Miami as well. But whereas I say... The genius of Scarface, it was Scarface was this devastating takedown of like the capitalist American dream. But this is far more of a frat boy romance, really. And it doesn't seem to really end up in a critical place. And that's where we see the the Wolf of Wall Street problem as well. Everything's wrapped up far too neatly and it never really questions the morality of their actions does it just feel quite celebratory of a little bit it treats their like their enterprises like ruthlessly exploitative 
and it and the film seems to treat it almost like in the end as an unfortunate like youthful phase rather than something deeply unethical it's not just the fact that they're arms dealers but you know miles teller's character spends months away from home constantly lying to his pregnant wife about what he does and this is just a bump in the road seems in their relationship it's like really i mean that's pretty big deal but it's an enjoyable enough film while it happens and the pacing's good good performances and i mean it it is it has got an absurd sense of humor you'd expect that from the hangover guy but it leaves you feeling a bit dirty i'd say because you'd need to invest quite a bit in your cynical side to really enjoy it and it's not something i can comfortably enjoy if you see what i mean miles teller in what i've seen him in so far is he is he sort of a mark of quality is he something that sticks out a little bit in this as a yeah i think i've not i've always found him very uh john kusaki well yes there's a bit of john kusaki in there but yeah he's always he's got He's got uh, kind of that s- gravity that, you know, you need as a, a movie star, I'd say. And he's, yeah, he's always been, he's always been pretty impressive. You know, he seems to be, take things seriously. And yeah, I think he's, I mean, I, he's older than you think he is, actually. I think he's like mid thirties now, even though he's like play, still playing youngsters. But yeah, I suppose there's a bit of, I, I, I hope that Ty Sheridan, you know, his career goes in a similar direction. He starts getting the, you know, the big roles because um, he's our boy. But yeah, yeah, I was impressed by him. And then Jonah Hill, I mean, he's he's decent, and he's de- he's he clearly wants to branch out into more mature stuff. He plays a total dick in this. They both do. But yeah, I'd say it's I'd say it's worth a watch. But you will need to have a a good scrub afterwards. I watched, um, as we all know, the first Venom film I watched and enjoyed because I liked the character so much and I thought it was sort of a fun film that only I seemingly liked. I watched Venom Let There Be Carnage and that was a different experience for me, Rupert. Um, I just, again, this is just a two minute. I just, I was, it just feels like, it felt like no one in this film knew what the direction of the movie was supposed to be. Like the, the interplay between Tom Hardy and the Venom persona and the, the, the tonal shifts in the plot that works around that sort of central uh, buddy comedy conceit. It, it, it looks like Andy Serkis. I don't know where else he's directed. It just feels like this was being pulled in lots of directions and it, and some of the editing and the cuts just leap between tones, not in a kind of zany, oh, this is a, this is a go with it and have fun feel. It felt random. It felt like it was, it felt like he had presented his movie to, to, to the heads at Marvel. And they said, this isn't acceptable. We're going to re-edit it into and salvage what we can. And then a load of people dug into the editing and this is the film we're left with. And it's just, got all of the all of the bits that would pull it strongly enough in certain directions to make intriguing cut off and we're left with like just the middle bit which is all just functional mm. um i can imagine that if they do what it says here a third venom film is in development and, and this is another thing i wanted to say actually about the marvel films is 
I know that you've got this tri- supposed trilogy of Venom films, right? All of which are pretty much going to be just average to unacceptable. And it's going to be boiled down to when they do the next Avengers film, a cameo. Like that's what it leads up to is like oh, yeah. an- another tiny character in a bloated <laughs> film for a few seconds to have a one liner. That's what it le- that's what this trilogy of films that probably cost upwards of half a billion dollars to make is leading to. And I think that's where I get my cynicism from. So your Venom letting the card is just nonsense. It's not it's not fun at all. It's just I don't I don't even know I can imagine like Tom Hardy sat in his trailer eating cheese thinking I don't really know what's happening to be honest. I don't know what I don't even know if this is supposed to be funny or dramatic. I don't know. This is a film that is going to be saved or made or broken in the edit. And it was not even made or broken in the edit. It was just made to be a film that is released. <laughs> wow. Okay. I, I I couldn't make it through the first one. So I, I don't think I'm going to watch this. No, there's, there's no reason to. I mean, I'm a big fan of the character Venom. And I think that... Yeah. Got me through a lot of the first one. Yeah, but, the first uh, one had Riz Ahmed in it, didn't it? I don't know. That man is pretty though. He is. He's a very cool dude, and I. He, it's almost worth it just for him, but mm, maybe not. Um, okay, let me. The, the Venom Let There Be Carnage is yeah. when you meet when you meet a new girlfriend. And you're out having a drink and like a meal and you're just tucking into your steak. And she says, oh, my God, I've got this friend called Rick. You'll love him. He's so random. <laughs> and you, your eyes widen and think, oh, he's a cat. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's this film. Yes. Yeah. I, it's not a quality I want from anyone I meet. <laughs> but... No. Um, Okay, so yeah, I won't watch that then. Excellent. Good. By the way, anyone listening to this who has ever been in that situation where someone says I've got a friend and he's random, unless I'm introduced to this man and he's got a bucket on one foot and like a tin of paint upended on his head and in one hand he's holding a old yellow pages in which he's like crossed out certain letters to spell swear words on each page through people's names and in the other hand he's holding a, a poker that's on fire. I don't don't describe them as random. No. They're just pricks. Yeah. The words can be replaced. Yeah, because probably what it really means is they're probably just going to say inappropriate things and have poor social skills. <laughs> All right. How long um, have you been a social worker? <laughs> um, let me quickly run through these two Eddie Murphy films. What, Raw and Delirious? If only. Um Vampire in Brooklyn is on time. <laughs> Bloody hell. Okay. 1995. Made during Craven, Wes Craven and Eddie Murphy's down period, I'd say. Um, so Eddie Murphy plays a suave vampire. He arrives in Brooklyn, not the gentrified Brooklyn we know today. And he's searching for the daughter of a vampire from his Caribbean island or something. He needs her... So he can live beyond the next full moon, basically. But she needs to give herself up willingly. So he has to seduce her. Uh, She is played by Angela Bassett, who is super hot, despite her, frankly, voluminous Tina Turner hair in this movie. Um, It's 
unusual in the horror comedy genre in surprise it does focus largely on a black cast and many of the main characters are women as well so that sounds good but yeah we'll find out that actually isn't as good as it sounds uh it's really good lighting good set design i like the practical effects um and and a lot of that stuff makes up for a, a lack of real scares and i i like the dated 90s hip-hop and r&b soundtracks that's fine um it's just not funny that is a big problem with it and really a lot of eddie murphy's kind of humor in this comes down to like self-references to his fact that he's a vampire like he'll just like say under his breath that he enjoys drinking blood or he dislikes garlic and stuff and it's like right okay yes 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 know about that sort of thing there's a completely unfunny sequence where he he uh basically just like shapeshifts uh to become this evangelical preacher making a speech to a crowd um and then there's another bit where he shapeshifts into this italian american and you realize ah they're going for the coming to america thing aren't they where he dresses up as different characters differences in coming to america is funny um but the yeah the writing is just so bad here there's this whole romantic triangle subplot involving Angela Bassett and her partner. And of course, then Eddie Murphy comes along. But yeah, this is where the problem really starts because Angela Bassett, I mean, she on paper, she could be like a cool, progressive feminist icon because she's like this tough cop. But she's actually just constantly compromised by this love triangle. And it makes her look totally feeble because her and her partner are just really unprofessional, just letting their feelings get in the way of the job. She's a far cry from like the kick-ass heron she played in Strange Days, put it that way. Uh, Eddie Murphy gets a really pointless voiceover, which literally explains nothing. I think he's being paid by the word. I don't know. Honestly, it would have been better without the comedy because it has this kind of quasi-operatic quality at the end that may have permeated the whole film if they had a better script or, I, I dare I say it, a director like Joe Dante or someone like that. I don't know who can balance these things a bit better. Um, but actually Joe Dante could possibly have done a better job of the other Eddie Murphy I wanted to mention, which is the golden child, which is also be- on prime. Be- before you move on, this story was written by three people, two of which are Eddie Murphy and his brother, Charlie Murphy. Right. And it stars as this, the sort of ghoul guy, Kadeem Hardison, who yes. was probably at his peak in uh, the 1997 film drive with Mark Dacascus. Again, yeah. like a buddy, buddy comedy thing. I just wanted to point out that Kadeem Hardison can be very good. But just in drive, he is pretty wasted in this movie. I mean, he's in it at the start, but basically, he just becomes like a ghoul to Eddie Murphy. Anyway, it's kind of a ripoff of the friend character, best friend character in American Werewolf, where he's kind of decaying constantly. So, but he's quite irritating. Um, Yeah, so it's very sub John Landis, really. And yeah, it's just not funny or scary, it's just depressing. And yes, so Golden Child, um, I mentioned this as well. This was made in 1986 between the first two Beverly Hills Cops. Um, And it's a basically the plot is in Tibet. This magical kid is kidnapped by Charles Dance. And the prophecy says that he will be taken to the city of the angels 
and be rescued by no angel the chosen one who is of course eddie murphy who's a roguish streetwise la dude whose day job is a slightly unlikely day job is it like a pi specializing in finding missing kids so anyway that specialized job but this is, this is directed by michael rich who also directed yes. the island not that one with michael kane that i saw a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and fletch as well uh yeah. so he's got a good synth score i'll say that some of the snare is astonishing so that's good um but yeah there's like Beverly Hills Cop, there is a sense at times like there's a semi-serious script which has been tweaked to accommodate Eddie Murphy's humour. But of course, the brilliance of Beverly Hills Cop was balancing Eddie Murphy's natural irreverent charm with some serious dramatic situations. So it worked as a decent cop thriller and a comedy. The Golden Child doesn't work as a fantasy adventure or a comedy. It's bafflingly disjointed, I'd say. Like some positive points first it has it's oddly progressive for the time like there's an interracial relationship at the forefront and the female character kicks most of the ass in the film so that's cool the visual interracial relationship is that between eddie murphy and charles dance yes (laughs) that's the main love (laughs) uh no it's actually between obviously it's this um woman that he gets involved with she's apparently come from tibet and obviously she's played by a chilean iraqi actress naturally um so yes uh the visual effects are quite impressive and actually the hell scene in this movie is much better than spawn and (laughs) that's our yardstick now (laughs) yeah and the stop motion demon at the end is quite well integrated into the scene so there's that but there's some really rough moments in this film. There's a scene where Eddie Murphy and this girl attack this Hell's Angels crack den place. And it features genuinely some of the worst editing I've ever seen in a fight scene. It is unintelligible. It's baffling. Um, Oh, Victor Wong rocks up halfway through, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Um, um, There's this really bizarre sequence where the magical kid makes a pepsi can come alive and yeah, dances to putting on the ritz yeah. yeah so i guess that's a positive maybe um the problem is for all it's like irreverent diversions like of course it has an a dream sequence which involves a live crowd or is a classic the script has no real jokes or even funny situations in it and, and the one joke really is eddie murphy making crude wisecracks in the face of tibetan pseudo-spiritualism it's too goofy and twee for adults but too dark and violent for kids and like eddie murphy's motor mouth strengths are never properly used in the film so i just wonder who it's for um i don't know with a funnier script and if they cut down the swearing and the gore it could have been a fun romp for youngsters i suppose but it's i think it's really the kind of movie that that would be deservedly forgotten if it hadn't been made during Eddie Murphy's golden period. So yeah, not good, unfortunately. So basically they're both crap. The Eddie Murphy <laughs> films I saw. All right. 10 both years apart. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, I've, I've got a few more, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna just uh, I'll leave two till next time. I'm gonna go through Hitman's Run with Eric Roberts from 1998, uh, 1999. Uh, this is a film where he at the start of it he is a hitman who's doing well, but he's told to kill one of his old school friends who's like an accountant, and he lets him run free. So then he becomes a sort of suburbanite perfect husband with a secret past that he doesn't tell his wife and daughter about and then he gets pulled back into his old way of life uh and has to avenge the kidnapping of his of his wife and daughter the way the film shows this is through eric roberts hair <laughs> which is at the start when he's a hitman it's swept if it, but eric roberts here is always back heavy isn't it if you think about it yeah right? so at the start of his hitman is swept back, like gel, blue gel out of a tub, straight back. When he's when he's a house husband, it's like feathered, like a Kurt Russell-y, oh. um sort of like feathered, you know, no no product, but lots of product in there, but none none to be seen. Bouncing around as he wears like a woolen jumper with this, the cuff sleeve sort of popped up. When he of course is a family man, but, but gets dragged back into the old world. Oh, he had the gel out again. He no no, it's a half ponytail. Ooh. He he has like a half ponytail. So he's got this like severe like revert like back bob, but then then a tiny half ponytail popped over the top. And I think, Christ, that that's the that's your characterism, isn't it? That's the characterization. That's it. Boom, <laughs> the hit. This the reason I was excited about this when I picked it up from the charity shop is because it's directed by Mark L. Lester, right? Oh yes. And it features C. Thomas Howell as well as someone who just gets fucking blown away so fast. Yes. Like you should get get him out of the film. Naturally um, unlikable man. With with a sidekick to Eric Roberts, who is like his his old that you know the guy who he saved in the industry and threw his own life away for to save his estranged son, and they obviously get thrown together. But. There's something about Mark L. Lester films. They're never boring. I've got to say that I thought this would just be total trash. But yeah, the, I mean, like Commando Eric, is anything but boring, isn't it, really? Exactly. And I think this, whilst this is a totally different beast, Eric Roberts is a fine front man for this sort of thing. You know, like he's he's got gravitas. Uh, he's got hair, certainly. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of silly scenes. There's some good car chases. There's some decent gunplay. And I was watching it. I thought, actually, I am enjoying this. I am actually, yeah. like, I can imagine putting this on in a, in a few years when I kind of half forgotten. I thinking, oh yeah, this is fine. It's not PM Entertainment level gold, <laughs> but it, it's if you come across Hitman's Run with one of its forty different covers, it's a very generic, but it's elevated by the sense that it knows where it is and everyone's having fun. And it's always fun to watch C. Thomas Howell just get brutally murdered. Oh my god, we did try with him, didn't we? We did try. A <laughs> well, sweeper is a better film than this, so we did really try. We were successful. I did enjoy but... sweeper actually. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's one of the most preposterous films I've ever seen. I think. What? How did they cast that man as a as a lead? It's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, um, Mark L. Lester. I need to dive into more of his films. Clearly, is he still making movies? Do we know? Uh, I've just he's born in 1946 he yes he is oh, he's, produ- he's producing the last okay. film I'm looking at this that he directed oh I'm scrolling down Rupert I'm scrolling down I'm scrolling down to 2014 when he directed Dragons of Camelot 
Oh my god, this could be a new gold mine. This could be the Godfrey Hove, the West. <laughs> this could be our new Yui Ball. Um, we need to start reviewing some more Yui Ball films on this podcast to raise his profile. Yeah, and also, uh, Mark L.S., looking at this, honestly, you've got Showdown Little Tokyo, Night of the Running Man. So we've got Blowback with Mario Van Peebles. Need to get some more Mario as well. I'm going to have to spend some money on eBay, I think. I have to get some have DVDs in. The, have we seen Night of the Running Man? Did we watch that? Yeah, yeah someone with Andrew McCarthy and Scott Glenn, where he... Oh. Where Scott Glenn gets stopped by a homeless man saying, have you got any change? And Scott Glenn tears his eyes out with a knife and says that'll teach you to talk to people so it will it will because if i said yeah. to someone excuse me and they pulled out a knife and slashed my face up i'd think i'm not gonna do that again i don't think yeah i gotta think <laughs> twice next time but yeah. <laughs> um okay let me just quickly whiz through richard jewel which is on prime okay. it's, it's literally the name richard jewel and it's a uh, made in 2019. It's a true life drama directed by Clint Eastwood, who is old. Um, but yes, it is based on a true story that occurred in 1996 during the Olympics in Atlanta. And Richard Jewell is a security guard who spotted a suspicious bag in a crowd. And basically he insists that people clear the area. The, the bomb goes off and two people are killed, but it could have been massively worse if it hadn't been for him being super like vigilant. So for a day, pretty much he's a hero, but then the FBI starts treating him as a prime suspect. And this is sort of behavioral suspicion because Richard Jewell has this obsession with law enforcement. Um, so he has a lot of knowledge about military stuff, but also he has an apparent motive according to them to make a name for himself because he wants to become like a cop basically a real life cop. And the film was basically about the FBI badgering him and taking advantage of his lack of common sense while his lawyer desperately tries to defend him from them manipulating him. It's got some really good performances in it, especially Paul Walter Hauser in the title role. And Kathy Bates plays his like eternally positive but anxious mum. And then Sam Rockwell plays his amusingly sarcastic world weary lawyer now clint eastwood as we know he's not a flashy filmmaker and it is quite stagey at times because it's mostly set in a small flat but he does get the best out of his actors i'd say the one area of the film which is pretty deeply questionable is this person called kathy scruggs who's played by olivia wilde and basically her character she's a journalist and she's basically selling sex to get information from the fbi i think it could just be another dig at the fbi i wonder though if she's sort of representing the media as a whole uh if you see what i mean like is in a corrupt system but either way it would seem to be quite symptomatic of clint eastwood's politics rather than her being a believable character as such she is actually based on a real character of course who is now dead so it's like mm, okay bit unfair but so and richard jewell is dead as well i just uh realized yes he is he is now and the but the changing attitude towards richard jewell in the film is is nicely portrayed and of course as british people were only too familiar with sordid tabloid media making their own meal out of 
frankly disputed truth. It reminds me also a little bit of the Meredith Kircher case, you know, the one where um, the American lady Amanda Knox was basically the prosecutors in Italy just decided that she'd murdered this girl and they they decided up front and then made the evidence fit made the evidence fit their kind of assumption rather than the other way around so it's quite similar to that kind of miscarriage and i found it quietly it is quite moving as well there's this whole thing with especially kathy bates character because she's so kind of wholesome and like innocent and there's this whole thing about tupperware like the fbi insist on like taking away her tupperware because it's assumed to be bomb making materials but of course to her it's just something to keep meals in. And it's so sad the way she's so hurt by this. Um, yeah, it's it's a solid piece of film craft, I'd say. Um, it's a serious story worth telling about a very awkward man, frankly, who he just never fitted the guise of the hero, I suppose. And therefore his heroism was doubted. And there are a couple of questionable character choices. But overall... I think that the concerns that the film lays out can be universally appreciated. So, yeah, I found this enjoyable. Richard Jewell, worth a watch. Oh, nice. So is, is this um, Clint Eastwood's last film? Or is he, is he done one since? I think he's done one since. He did one called Cry Macho, um, which I think he may have starred in as well. I can't remember, but I know he wrote and directed his latest one. It was called Cry Macho. Um, he, must, he must be at least in his mid-40s now. <laughs> He's actually playing a 27-year-old. Um, so it's, it's that point in the uh, in the show we talk about our... Well, I've, I've cut out a few for time. Um, our films of the week. So what are you thinking, Rupert? Well, not Thor. <laughs> start um yeah and the eddie murphy ones are just depressing hey, well it's gonna have to be traffic or richard jewell and i think given the fact that traffic is basically unwatchable in its current form because it doesn't have the necessary subtitles for us english language speakers um i, I might go with richard jewell i think i thought that oh, was nice. a surprise maybe because it was surprisingly enjoyable like I wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as I did, but I think it's like you know Sam Rockwell and people, you know, and Kathy Bates. You can't go wrong. A quality with cast, yeah. yeah. I suppose for me it would be Hitman's Run with Eric Roberts, directed oh, by Mark yeah. Lester from 1998 and uh, 99. <laughs> sorry, I think it's just because I was thinking there are these films out there, you know, you can come across from the 90s that are, you know, you stick to what you know, you stick to Godfrey Ho, you stick to Yubi Ball, you stick to uh, Mark L. Lester and there are films out there you may have missed that are going to be good and now I just want to watch Blowback with Mario Van Peebles again so I, 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 yeah that's my film it, it seems harsh to say that that's a better film over something like Spider-Man No Way Home but at least I had an emotional response to that movie and at least it made me think about the directors behind it and maybe look it into the, the catalogue which is something that just doesn't happen with Marvel films for me. And at least like, two hundred and fifty million dollars wasn't thrown in it as well. That's true. Yeah. Um, two hundred and fifty million tubs of blue gel was instead. <laughs> I, 
I think what we need to do is go back through all the episodes and capture all of our films of the week and put them onto a, like a master list. It'd be like a forget the IMDb top 100. This is this is the only list you need. Watch these bad boys, and you've got you basically got the story of film. Yeah, can you imagine it? Yeah. If we, as they're gathered around a table with like a single swinging dim bulb above it as we try to work out where the mummy, the, the curse of the dragon emperor's tomb fits below the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in our personal pantheon of movies Jesus Christ um, we have to do the Arkansas for, ne- for next time oh goodness me, yes so I was thinking oh yeah Angela Bassett yeah. Two. Um, Angela Bassett. Two. Eric Roberts. No, 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 no. Angela Bassett to Hulk Hogan. Because I. Because I mentioned him at the start. I didn't even get to talk about the ultimate weapon. Oh my goodness me. Okay. That could, that could be a good one. Angela Bassett to Hulk Hogan. Gosh. Okay. Maybe it's easier <laughs> than we think. Yeah. The thing is, you can't even talk about the Savala, so, you know, Thunder and Paradise is just out the water straight away. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, just for because obviously people are going to struggle with this. You've got No Holds Barred with Hulk Hogan and what was his name uh, Tiny Lister which takes you to Friday you've got the ultimate weapon which no one is in you've got <laughs> Miss, Mr Nanny Suburban Commander there's a few there's a few ways you can go mm. oh and he was and he was in Rocky 4 wasn't he as Thunderlips so there's some stuff there yeah he's probably been in some shoddy cameos here and there that people might remember I don't know um okay I'm going to have to give this some thought obviously yeah, but a, a beautiful episode. I enjoyed that a lot. I like the preamble. Yes. And like I said, if you anything we've said today, if you want to talk to us about it, thank you to all the new listeners. Um, it's the men who talk at outlook.com. But until next time, Rupert, I will just have to love you forever. I'm afraid. Okay, go on then. I'll love you straight back. <laughs> you, you bugger, you are. Mm. Uh,